<clears throat> if you think it's cold today, would you raise your hand? <clears throat> I agree. And last I checked, it's around three degrees. But actually, regular temperature, but actually today's weather is really pretty good uh, because um, it was minus 95 regular temperature in Antarctica a while back. So really, you know, three degrees, this is a warm spell. Compared to minus 95, the wind chill was over 100 and something. Uh, but if that doesn't really make you warm and you're still feeling a little cold, the Bible has the answer. Because in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 6, it says, His word is in my heart like a burning fire. So if you want to get warm, just memorize scripture. Can I get amen? Amen. Very simple there. They should put that on national news. <clears throat> now, uh, February 7th, there's three reasons why it's such an honor for me to speak on February 7th. And the first one was alluded to earlier for weeks now. This is being called the Super Sunday. And I don't think I've ever had the opportunity before to speak on the Super Sunday. <clears throat> so since I have this opportunity, I want to take advantage of it. And uh, I'm, I'm dropping back. I'm dropping back. I see an open receiver in the end zone. Let's give him a hand for that. I couldn't pass that up. And, but I want you to know that all ministers today are so thankful that the Super Bowl game isn't on while they're speaking. <clears throat> now, the second reason I'm so honored to speak today is because this is the first Sunday in February. And as was said, February is Black History Month. And there is so much for us to learn and appreciate about the history of African-Americans. And I've only scratched the surface. I wanna continue learning more. And just recently I found out that almost 1,000 streets in America have been renamed for Martin Luther King. And out of all those cities, the first one to do that <coughs> was Chicago. <coughs> and uh, it used to be called South Park Way from 22nd Street South to 115th Street. And I appreciate everybody clapping. And, and uh, this was done just four months after Dr. King's assassination. People were shocked how fast Mayor Daley Sr. did this. But there were some African Americans that were upset at this. And you think, why would they be upset? Well, they felt Dr. King, to be honored correctly, should have a street that goes all through Chicago, not just through the black community. And there were others who felt this was a rushed decision to rename the street because it happened just three weeks before the National Democratic Convention in 1968. And some politicians had the idea, if you hurry and rename the street, it will lessen the likelihood of riots. So this renaming maybe was done more for political reasons 
than to truly honor the work and ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King. <clears throat> First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, talks about people who understood their times. May we understand history times along with present times so we can make better times in the future, especially for those who experience racism and injustice. The third reason, and every time I ever speak, it is such an honor because I'm able to talk about Jesus, the Messiah, my Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, you are life. You are light for the whole world. You are truth. You are grace. And we need you. And we pray now that the Holy Spirit would help us to hear your words, to understand your words, to apply your words to our life, and then, Lord, to help us pass on your words to other people. We pray this in your name for God's glory. Amen. This is Matthew part three in my series, What Jesus Said. Many things can be measured. We can measure the temperature outside. We can measure how much snow there was. We can measure the size of our shoes or our shirt. We can measure the room in an apartment. We can, uh, some of us actually took a line to measure how much have we grown. Uh, we can measure water in a cup. But what about faith? How do you measure faith? And I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 8 and to see what did Jesus have to say about faith. Matthew chapter 8. In verse 5, we find Jesus entering Capernaum. And Capernaum was a small city uh, on the Sea of Galilee, a small town. And a centurion comes to Jesus. A centurion was a Roman military officer in charge of 100 people. And the centurion comes to ask Jesus for help. <clears throat> Listen to verse 6. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Now, this is unusual because centurions tell. They don't ask. And the Greek word for ask here actually means the centurion was imploring. He was actually pleading for help. One translation says he begged. And notice what he calls Jesus, Lord. The Greek word for Lord here means supreme in authority. Somehow the centurion had come to believe that Jesus was supreme in authority, that he had complete control. And Jesus says in verse 7, I will, and so he explains, when he realizes Jesus is in complete control, he explains his servant is at his home, paralyzed in terrible suffering. In verse 7, Jesus says to him, I will go and heal him. I don't know about you, but if that was me, I would be so happy and excited. Jesus is coming to my home to heal my servant. But not this centurion. Listen to what he said in verse 8 and 9. 
The Saturn replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Again, he calls Jesus Lord, supreme in authority. Then he makes a statement. I am not good enough for you to come in my home. Maybe he had a deep awareness of his sins and or a recognition of the surpassing greatness of Jesus. He goes on to say, Jesus, you don't have to be in my home to heal my servant. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Wow. Now, again, I would have thought that Saturn would say, well, yes, can you come into my house and put your hands on my servant? Or can you come and can you say a prayer next to my servant? But he said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. <clears throat> when he said that, I wonder if Jesus took a step back and then he stroked his beard <laughs> as he's looking at him. And then he turned to the disciples and listen to what he said in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and he said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. How do you think that made disciples feel? The measure of their faith wasn't near the measure of faith of this non-Jewish military soldier. If I could only use three words to describe the centurion, I would say humble, I would say loving, and I would say faith. Now we know he's humble because he said, Jesus, I don't deserve you have come to my home. We know he was a man of tremendous faith by saying, just say the word. And you might say, well, where do you get the loving from? Well, this person who was paralyzed in terrible pain was not his wife or his parents or his children. It wasn't a family member or a close friend. This was his servant. And he showed his love and action by going to Jesus seeking help. Are we able to come to Jesus with the phrase, just say the word? Would people describe us with those three words, humble, loving, faith? Just say the word. May we reflect upon that phrase. Let's continue on in chapter 8 to hear Jesus again talk about faith. In verse 23, Jesus gets into a boat and his disciples follow him. This story is actually also in Luke chapter 8 and Mark chapter 4. And we found out that Jesus goes in the stern. Now, for you non-boat people, the stern is in the back of the boat. And Jesus goes to sleep on a cushion. Without any warning, a furious storm arises. And the, if you can picture in your mind a boat going up and down in the waves. And the waves are smashing on the boat. The disciples are soaked. They're panicking. They go quickly to get Jesus. In desperation, their eyes are open wide. 
And they say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, the word they said for Jesus is the exact same Greek word the centurion used. Supreme in authority. Now, I'm surprised about this context. We picture this terrible storm and all this you know, chaos going on. And Jesus doesn't do something right away. He says something right away. And he's laying down. I don't know about you, but somebody comes to wake you up and they say something to you. We don't know if Jesus was still laying down when he spoke to them. I don't know about you. Did he kind of stretch a little bit first? Like, what's the deal, fellas? Did he sit up when he said something? Or did he get himself together and he stood up? And the first thing he said to them, you of little faith. He didn't quickly stop the storm. He addressed them. He said, you of little faith. And on a side note, five times in the book of Matthew, Jesus repeats that phrase, you of little faith. And every time he does it to the disciples. <clears throat> then he follows that up. And he asked, why are you so afraid? Now, the disciples didn't completely lose their faith because they ran to Jesus and they called him Lord. But it seems like as the fear went up, the faith went down. Everybody hear that? As the circumstances around them, the fear is going up, the faith is going down. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? All of us will be in storms. So the question is, how will those storms affect our faith? How will those storms affect our faith? Yes, the disciples were in a furious storm, but Jesus brought complete calm. The direct opposite. Just as the disciples sought to get closer to Jesus during the storm, may we also seek to get closer to Jesus when we're experiencing storms in life knowing that he can calm the storm or he can calm us in the storm. And may we grow in understanding what it means, the word Lord, supreme in authority. Now, changing gears, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where people are being chosen, people are being picked. And maybe think back to your classroom days and there's uh, classmates that are picking other classmates, maybe based on athletic ability or based on your smartness or based on popularity. Often it seems to be biased and unfair. But I wonder, what kind of people did Jesus pick? Who did he look for? Go to chapter 9 in Matthew. Chapter 9 in Matthew, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said to him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. How did Jesus pick people? Did he pick them based upon their finances, their bank account? Did he pick them based upon how religious they were? Did he pick people because of their highly intelligence, their education background? No. He picked people because they were a sinner. Does everybody hear that? Jesus picked people because they're a sinner. Jesus looked for sinners. Hallelujah. Lord, here I am. I'm one. That's who Jesus is looking for. Now let's go back to verse 9. Look at verse 9. Matthew was a tax collector. Now let's all be honest, even the people at home. Would you raise your hand if you're excited and really joyful about paying taxes? Anybody? He's been in the cold weather too long, all right? <laughs> that, that, you know, none of us are excited and happy about April 15th. But we cannot compare Matthew as a tax collector 2,000 years ago with IRS agents today. Because back 2,000 years ago, tax collectors were thought of as traitors. They were turncoats because the Roman Empire hired them to get money for the Roman Empire. And then these tax collectors became wealthy because they overcharged the people. They were sinners practicing lying and cheating. That's what they did daily. Jesus said two words to Matthew. He said, follow me. And the scripture says, Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth. He has a good life. It's a secure future for him. And the Bible says he got up and followed Jesus. Now we move from Matthew's office to Matthew's home. And he had a big home. So big that he could host Jesus and the 12 disciples. And he's hosting his best friends who are also tax collectors. And some other sinners. And there's a few Pharisees that show up. So he has a big place. Now, the Pharisees don't like what they're seeing. And remember, in Middle East culture, when you have a meal with someone, that's accepting that person. So they go over to one of the disciples and say, hey, why is Jesus doing this? And Jesus hears them. And Jesus responds immediately <clears throat> by saying, according to the New Living Translation, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And Jesus ends verse 13 by saying, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. He didn't come for anybody who thinks they got it all together. He's bypassing them. And he's going to the people who admit, acknowledge that they're sinful. Later on in Matthew, Jesus says to the chief priests and elders, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, what do tax collectors and prostitutes have in common? They're both sinning. And they're aware of their sin. You don't have to convince them of that. St. Augustine said, the confession of sin invites the physician's healing. The confession of sin invites the physician's healing. 
Oh, may we be more like Jesus and be willing to sit down with sinners like us. Now let's go to the end of chapter 9. In verse 35 and 36, we find Jesus is going wherever people are. And he's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing. He had compassion on lost and hurt people. In verse 37 and 38, he says to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus makes an observation, then he gives instruction. He used a farming analogy that they would understand. A large crop is in the fields, but there are only a few workers to gather it in. The harvest is people who are ready to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior sent by God. But more workers are needed. Anyone who is a follower can become a worker. Someone who loves Jesus and wants to tell others the good news about him. Think about the people who you regularly and randomly meet daily and weekly. A doctor, a nurse, a dentist, a receptionist, someone who's at the dry cleaner, the laundromat, at a gas station you go to, someone at a restaurant, at a grocery store, and so on. I want to give an example of this. When Rumbi and I, hi Rumbi, when Rumbi and I got married, she said to me that she would like to get her nails done. And I said, no problem, okay, what kind of markers do you want me to buy? (laughs) Well, that's not exactly what she had in mind. And so over the years, she's gone and she's met many women who do nails. And recently, she's got to know this couple from Asia And when she goes to see them, there's a relationship there. There's a friendship there. And she's able to naturally share and plant seeds with this couple. Jesus tells us to ask. The Greek word also means pray. We are to pray. We are to ask the Lord to send out more workers in his harvest. How often do we do that? How often do we pray that? Probably not often enough. And I have to admit, I need to do this more. And I thought this morning, just as a practical way, even if you have children or or grandchildren around, to write a little note to say, pray for workers and put on the refrigerator. I think we see our refrigerator pretty often. And we see that note, even if we stop, And we just stop, Lord, would you send out workers into your harvest? A lot of times we wonder, well, what's God's will? What should I do? Well, he's telling you right here what to do. He's telling you to pray for laborers and to think you can help more workers come so more people come into God's kingdom. And so maybe just make a little note on your refrigerator, pray for workers. As we think about these passages in Matthew, may we focus on humble, loving faith even in a storm, because Jesus is Lord. He is supreme in authority. And let us rejoice that Jesus is looking for sinners like us. May there be more workers in the harvest. May we be those workers in the harvest. And let us pray for more workers to join in the harvest for God's glory 
In Jesus' name, amen.